It's a brand new day for baseball in Gaston County as the Gastonia Honey Hunters have kicked off play this season. But we wanted to take a look back at just how we got here. We have two historians with us today on Savvy Citizen to talk about the history of baseball in Gaston County and specifically black baseball. We talk about the history of the Negro Leagues here in Gaston County and also about world famous players that came through and played games here right in your own backyard. Today we're talking with Michael Turner Webb and Jason Luker about the history of the Negro Leagues in Gaston County. So welcome. So it's it's been a while for me um, on Savvy Citizen. It took a little six month break to get budget season in, and I've got also got Justin Amos here with us today. So he's gonna um, talk to you guys as well. You're just gonna curl up in the back and take a nap. Yes, it's, it's been yes. budget season. So yes, it's been budget it. season. Plus, like this whole like new social interaction thing is it weird still. So wear you out. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll need a nap after this for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading something about something Negro Leagues related and. Ransom was his last name. There's a Ransom Street in Gaston County also. Is that it was Ransom it? Hunter. Ransom Hunter. That's what it was for the yeah. Honey Hunters. Yeah. Is that street name named after him? Ooh, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. That whole Maybe area should be named after him. Yeah. You know, Mount Holly <laughs> should be called, you know, part of Mount Holly should be called Ransom Town. Because okay. he owned a, a good chunk of what is now Mount Holly. If you go down to um, Glendale and uh, Hawthorne mm-hmm. and where they intersect, that's where his house was. He was, he was a very ingenious man. We don't know exactly when he was set free. We know that he, he was set free before the end of the Civil War. He was uh, enslaved, most likely with the Hoyle family. That's the, at least the family, the family history says it was the Hoyles. And, um, and he, was, he shows up in 1870, but I believe he was, he was already um, a free man by the 1860s. And he built his, his home at this intersection um, and had a, a basically a, like a that time frame uh, gas station. You know, you come by, you get your shoes, whore, um, shoe, get your horses shoed, get your your food, and you know what have you. Just, you know, a little snack. He's got it for you, and you just move on with your day. And it was one of the um, one of the main drags that came from Charlotte down into Gastonia, or what would become Gastonia, and on out. And he would buy up land. Um, uh, he was able to get about eighty acres of property when he uh, uh, that we know of. And he is in at least 30 different deeds, uh, transactions in Gaston County, uh, which is extremely high for, for an African-American man in the, in the early 1870s. And he bought all this land, and he was growing um, orchards on them. And then A.P. Ryan, we know at least A.P. Ryan started doing business with him and buying that land to build mills on it because he bought what was at that time was, you know, quote-unquote cheap land um, because it was right next to the river, so it wasn't really good for growing crops. But it makes for really good river access for, say, a mill. <laughs> so all of a sudden he went from cheap land to very expensive land, and he knew it. And, and he was able to um, uh, sell the property, and he would buy other pieces of land. This is right during Reconstruction. So there's a lot of freemans um, coming out, and they're looking to start their own families. So they would go to, to Ransom, and uh, the story would go, he would sell land to them real cheap right next to them, and they would start building property. And then they buy land, and they'd build more property, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew in this little community. And he, they called it Freedom, um, right after the Civil War. Oh. So yeah, he's a, he was a very interesting guy. Lived until nineteen, gosh, wrote it down nineteen eighteen. He lived in nineteen. He went from eighteen thirty eight to nineteen eighteen. Um, married twice. Him and his wife Rebecca were both owned, most likely by the Hoyles. And um, and we think it was. We're still doing some research. It looks like. 
when Andrew Andrew Hoyle died, they his estate went into into, uh, into sale, and it looks like it was somewhere in maybe around that time. That's my theory right now is that that somehow Ransom was either able to buy his freedom or was able to get free somehow or the you know some, somewhere along that line he was able to get to find freedom and him and Rebecca and a couple of their kids mo- many of the kids stayed enslaved um, and were sold off but the rest of them were able to start their family and uh, Rebecca sadly passed away and then he married another lady by the name of Margaret um, uh, Maggie is what she went by Maggie Wells and they got married and they were very different in age he was 52 and she was 28 so <laughs> that was a wait this is ran- a, you're talking about ransom this hunter. is ransom okay. hunter and his second wife uh, when he was 52 and she was 28 and um they had two kids and and what's really interesting is that you know he died in 1918 but maggie didn't die until 1940 and so that's the interesting thing about ransom is his knowledge his his information has been passed down through the family but is a very short list i mean you know you 1940 though it seems like a long time ago for us it's really not that long ago i mean there's yeah. people still with us that you know can recall 1940 mm-hmm. and so that's how close we are to the stories of people who knew ransom personally and that's how his, his information has been able to be preserved in the family and we're just now starting to put it together in, in kind of document form i'm um, trying to you know match things up so it's really interesting stuff and and yeah to, to come you know write the story even longer um that's where the name uh, the honey hunters uh, they brought out the hunter part was um an homage to to ransom and the, uh, the kind of can-do spirit the tenacity the resilience that ransom has shown through his life that we can even see in the small bit that we can we can document does he still have family in the area he does um he has you know we had 12 kids all together i believe um and, th- and of course they had kids themselves sure. and, and the hunter family if you look in the census records there's there's plenty of of hunters in the area even you know early on so yeah there, there's a lot of descendants or some people that you know i say a lot i'm not 100 percent sure about that but there are several family members that can still connected to the to them and, and they know exactly where um some of the things were that were connected to him directly where the house was and um where the farm was and things of that nature so let's go through the history of i guess baseball in gaston county and um the significance of the negro leagues to to gaston county yeah, it's it's something that Michael and I've have had the opportunity to talk about on, on many occasions. Just looking at the the love affair of, of baseball, it's a long time love affair of baseball here in Gaston County. It's been a big part of the community for you know, as long as there's been a community to, to in the area. And it's really interesting. Usually, we think about when we think about baseball here in Gaston County, we usually think about you know recent stuff like the honey, honey hunters coming in. Um, or even the Grizzlies, or even if you know people remember like the Gastonia Rangers, or what have you, or even to the uh, mill ball, where every textile mill, which we have plenty of, mm-hmm. all had you know semi-pro games and they play against, against each other. That's why I see so many pictures from like the 1930s of my grandmother playing. She worked in a mill. Mm-hmm. And she has all these baseball, baseball, softball pictures. I didn't realize they had mill teams. Oh yes, as far as I can tell, every mill had a mill team, and every town would have a team as well. And they would play each other all the time, and they'd have their own little leagues uh, through the area, and it was you know, you know, big time recreational uh, fun. I mean, if you look at the Gaston Gazette paper, they have a list of all the teams that are playing, who they're playing, the scoreboards, everything. It's 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 bigger than the national or even you know some of the more bigger regional games. When we hear about America's pastime, that it, it truly was. When you look at the nineteen. But basically, from the ni- 1900 on th- on up through modern time period, baseball was a big part of your everyday experience. 
to add on to what Jason was saying, um, they treated it as like a gathering of sorts. They treated it like a, a reunion, an event. Uh, most of these games were scheduled on the weekend, so of course, a lot of the people who play baseball worked at the mills mm-hmm. on the weekdays or uh, were working on their farm. But every weekend was a gathering from the community, and they treated it as such. And it, you know, and this was definitely you know, a segregated society, and um, so it was not you know, when you look at mill ball. It was definitely you know the white workers and and the white families that were uh, making up those teams and making up the, the, the stadium. But that does not exclude the African American community. They were very much baseball lovers, just like anybody else, and began to form their own teams and their own leagues um, in Gaston County. That's where we we get into the Negro leagues. That is correct. And one of the uh, people I found through my research that uh, played a heavy part in the early days of black baseball here in Gaston County was Dr. Herbert Irwin. He formed a team here in Gastonia called the Gaston Giants, and they were very successful playing all throughout the area as well as the state. I even found articles where they would travel as far as Virginia and West Virginia playing baseball games against other light baseball teams as well. Any relation to Irwin Center? Yes, it's ah. the he, that's the namesake. That's him. That's yeah. him. Yeah. Lived here my whole life and learn things every oh, new things he, every day. Yeah, he was an <laughs> avid sports fan and he loved baseball. Okay. And so um yeah, and with that, I think that's probably one of the reasons why they named the recreational center after him, not only with his love of baseball, but also because of his field in the uh, medical field. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so being, you know, the first African-American doctor in Gaston County mm-hmm. holds a lot of weight. Yeah, he, he's a, you talk about another in, individual that's just absolutely a fascinating person to study is, is um, Dr. Irwin. He came in in the early 1900s. He was actually, you know, came to this area to be the African-American doctor at Gaston County. And uh, one of the things he is uh, credited for is also starting the, the uh, first hospital for African-Americans, the Negro Hospital, which is still standing here in, in Gaston County in the, in, the, in the Highland community. And he was... You know, very active in that. He'll raise the money um, for it. Uh, was on the board for for many years. Uh, you know, he's you know, operated out of the hospital as well, and uh, served the community uh, throughout his his life. He had a sadly he had a very short life, but it was a very impactful life, and very active in our area, and especially with the Highland community. He's a, he's a cornerstone to the Highland community, which is the prominent African American community of Gaston County, uh, of Gastonia. And just a, a wonderfully um, gifted man who, who devoted himself to Gastonia and Gaston County and, and its growth. And, you know, in not only in medicine, but also in recreation and education as well. He's active in the schools, too. So you know, it's pretty much if you look at early Gaston County history, early Gastonia history, you're going to find Dr. Irwin. He's just that active of a guy and, um, and just really neat stuff. Gaston County is really unique in the fact that we still have our Negro hospitals, both the first one and the second one. The yeah. second one was built in 1935, and the first one was built in 1920, I believe. Okay. Um, and that's extremely rare. We're, we're, we're trying to see exactly how rare it is. Um, I know we got Charlotte beat because they tore down Good Sam, which was the uh, African-American hospital when they built um, uh, Panther Stadium. And that's where it was located. And you think about that. If you were African-American and you had to get your appendix taken out, that's where you went. 
all throughout this area. If, if someone can't come to help you, you had to go see a doctor. You had to get over the river to Panther Stadium today to Good Sam. And that's one of the reasons that Dr. Irwin came in this area because this is an unserved area. They were just really hard-pressed. And that's, you know, where they started, you know, growing um, in the area, especially with the, the medical field. And it's just, it's incredible that it, the buildings are still there and that, that we can, you know, document them. Yeah, that's amazing. And so with that being said, uh, many black baseball teams would pop up after that through the roaring, roaring 1920s and the 30s and then up until uh, World War II and post-World War II. Uh, you had teams like the Gastonia Sluggers, the Gastonia Red Sox. Um, and then you also had teams like the one in Belmont. You had the Belmont Blues, um, who I got to be friend who played on the team, Mr. Carl Forney. He was a star ace pitcher at Reed High School in Beaumont, which was an all-African-American high school at the time. He, w- he was able to help them win two state championships. And then from there, he signed a minor league contract with the St. Louis Cardinals. Wow. And uh, with that opportunity, he only had uh, one year to play the game. And it uh, what he would always say, it wasn't really one of my greatest achievements because I felt like it wasn't a fair shot. Hmm. And so with that, uh, they released him after that. And then he went on to play with the Indianapolis Clowns, hmm. which they were very famous to not only African-Americans, but to also white Americans. They were like as if today the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball. Oh. They would barnstorm all throughout the country, entertaining people. And so uh, he, he managed the Indianapolis Clowns up until night from 1957 until 1962. And many of his players went on to play in the major leagues, and also they played in other leagues throughout the country as well, such as the minor leagues and whatnot. And when did, when did the, the leagues actually start? Before 1920, you had a lot of black baseball teams forming and organizing um, as early as the 1870s throughout the country. And then by the 1880s, you had Cap Anton, who was very famous in the major leagues, but he was a known white supremacist. Mm -hmm. And he did not like to see black men playing with, you know, his white counterparts. And so because of his push being the star baseball player in the major leagues, he uh, was able to corral the owners to make a gentleman's agreement to disbar African-Americans from playing major league baseball. Um, But before they were able to disbar African-Americans from playing baseball in the major leagues, you had at least two African-Americans who had a shot playing in the major leagues. The first one was William Edward White, he played for the Providence Craze. And then the other one was Fleetwood Walker. Hmm. He played for the Toledo Blue Stockings. In fact, his brother, I'm sorry, it was the third one. His brother uh, was signed by the Toledo Blue Stockings um, after he was already on the team. He, his brother, Weldy, played for six games. And so after these three gentlemen uh, played in the game, in the majors for one year, that's when they disbarred African-Americans from joining the major leagues. Wow. So with the, the leagues themselves, the Negro Leagues, correct me if I'm wrong, they were organized, managed, run, facilitated 
by the African-American community? Yeah, it would be from the 1880s. It would be another 40 years before there was true organized Negro League play. Because in 1919, Ruth Foster, who was a, a noted African-American pitcher, uh, formed what is known today as the Negro National League in Kansas City, Missouri. And their first season was started in 1920. And so from there, you had the Negro National League, the Negro American League. Um, you also, in between the 1920s and the 50s, you had other ones like the East-West League and the American Negro League. Uh, Michael, in your research, you identified nine, nine players from our region here who played in Negro Leagues. If I read that right. I, you know, I'm interested in if you could describe – um, what it was like for those players to, to play baseball during that time, especially in, segre in the segregated South. What, what types of issues, uh, what types of circumstances did they face um, trying to play their sport? Well, the ones I had the opportunity of meeting, like Mr. Forney, who passed away two, three years ago, a lot of these men, they went through a lot, you know, Many of them were not playing. Even in the north, they had situations. But when they had to travel down south, they would come into towns. And when they entered into certain towns, they already saw, you know, people protesting. They would see entering into towns a uh, black man being hanged on a tree. Uh, when they entered into towns, they were traveling from afar, so the first thing you think of when you're traveling, you're hungry or you need to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. These men were not allowed to go into the restaurant to eat or go to the bathroom. So a lot of times, if they wanted food, they would either have to go to the uh, back door of these restaurants or go into the black community if there was one in these small towns. Uh, to go to the bathroom, they would have to stop on the side of the road and do what they needed to do. Y'all heard of the movie Green Book, right? Yes, I actually just watched that the other day. I did not know that existed. Yeah, so the Green Book was this book for African Americans during the Jim Crow era to show them places to go where it was owned and operated by other African Americans to make sure, you know, this was a good place for them to go. And if you're in this town, this is where you should go to eat or stay in a hotel. And so a lot of these black baseball teams used the Green Book, or all, if not the Green Book, they knew people in other towns who could house them mm -hmm. and have a place to stay. Because a lot of times, again, you know, because they were uh, not allowed to go to these eateries or stay in a hotel, they had to either eat on the bus or sleep on the bus. I looked to see if Gaston County had any locations in the Green Book. Not. I think the closest place listed was Asheville, maybe. But I may be looking at an older version. There, there is some research they're doing right now. The state is doing this. Yeah. There's some really cool stuff they're looking to try to find all the different green books. Because some of the green books were, you know, well-known, and others were, you know, kind of rural mm -hmm. areas. Um, and that's an interesting thing about Gaston County is it it had a uh, very strong African-American communities in a lot of the municipalities that they were, they were forming. And even in the, in the mills that were coming around, because our, you know, our towns grew up around these textile mills. And so it's like towns within towns kind of a thing. And so there are African-American communities inside of African-American communities, if that makes any sense. And so that it was, it's an interesting trying to, to know exactly where they would be able to go. Um, Gastonia 
is is really interesting because we talked about Highland community. It is a very well established community. It was it was here. African American uh, families were in the area, right wing. You know, in eighteen eighties when you know when the town became a town, that the, the the community was already forming. And so by the time we're looking at the Negro Leagues, there's hot, there's there's actual hotels um, that serve the African American community in in this area where the where we are right now in the admin building and the, and the sheriff's building and the courthouse, that's part of the old um, Highland community, where it's what they call the, the um, oh goodness, I'm gonna butcher it. It's basically where the, the business was. Mm-hmm. So this, this right where we are would have been where the, the hotel was, where the theater was, where uh, the school was, a lot of the community. So this is kind of almost a safe haven. Uh, you can get to Gastonia, it's, it's, you're, you're pretty good. You know, if you're going into you know, deeper parts of the rural area, it gets a little more dicey. But in the, and they had to plan for that, like Michael was saying. It, it was, you know, it wasn't like, oh, let's jump on the bus and we'll see where we end up. No, no, no. It was well thought out. You knew exactly where you were going, or you had a, you know, you had someone there you're going to meet that's going to show you. You did not want to travel at night. Um, you did not want to be, you know, if you broke down on the side of the road, that was that was bad times. So it was, and they, and they knew it, and they and they planned for it as best as, best as they could to to get to their next stop. And one of the more wild things about it was even when they came to play, both white and black people came out to see the games. That was, you know, that was always, uh, it was kind of a situation. It's segregated when we say it is kind of a thing. And they would come and see these incredible athletes play the game that they all love. Where did they play in, in Gaston County? Uh, they played all over. Um Again, you know, Belmont had Reed High School, oh, that, so yeah. a lot of games were played there. Um, Highland had uh, the Irwin Memorial Baseball Field. And that's the thing. A lot of uh, towns in Gaston County had their own light baseball teams. So where Jason was talking about a uh, majority of the White Mill baseball teams playing, they had uh, reserve time to use these baseball fields. May have been in Cramerton, may it have been in Mount Holly, Cherryville, Gastonia. They were playing on the same ballparks, but just um, reserved and relegated on certain days and times. You know, one of the, the great things about baseball is the history, and we've, we've talked about that some today. With the ne- Negro Leagues, that's a part of baseball's history that's not talked about. And so I appreciate you doing the research and identifying these local players, but I, I think our listeners will be um, – interested to know is just a little bit more about some of the, the local players that you've um, researched in, in the last couple of years. One of the main ones that really intrigued me was Otto Briggs. He was from Kings Mountain on the side of Gaston County, <laughs> not, uh, mm-hmm. Cleveland not Cleveland County. County. <laughs> the, the true Kings Mountain. He was very interesting. In fact, he was the first one from Gaston County to play professional Negro League baseball. And he played for the Hilldale Daisies. Uh, he was on the te- he was on that team when they played in the first Negro League World Series, which was in 1924. They played the Kansas City Monarchs. Unfortunately, they lost that series. But the following year, they would end up winning the Negro League World Series. Wow! Yeah. Uh, what's even more fascinating about his life after he retired from the game of baseball, he married a woman in Philadelphia who had who was the owner of an, of the local African-American newspaper there. And he and his wife were the owners and operators, but also the editor of this newspaper. 
as well. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, there were others. Uh, again, Carl Forney from Belmont. He became manager at the age of 22. Holy moly. I didn't know he was that young when he was starting. He was 22, and I'm, I, I can't say for certain because I'm still doing my research. It's probably out there, but he has to be one of the youngest ever, if ever, mm-hmm. to have managed a professional baseball team, maybe black or white. I can, I can, in 22, I could hardly manage my sock drawer. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> tell me that. Good grief. <laughs> exactly. And then you had other guys. It's, it's fascinating um, with Magic Johnson coming to throw out the first pitch for the Honey Hunters. His, one of his teammates and best friends was James Worthy. <laughs> James Worthy is from Gastonia. Well, his father also played uh, black baseball here in the area as well, and he was noted for his play on the diamond. So to find, you know, all these little fascinating stories about the men who started their careers in Gaston County and, you know, being from Gaston County, it's very interesting. You had other guys like Butch Davis. Uh, He played for the Baltimore Eli Giants. If you see the word Eli is not spelled Eli, it's spelled elite. But being, you know, Southern. Elite Giants. Being that most Southerners, you know, we all we we all have a certain <laughs> Southern way of uh, saying certain things. We say Eli, Baltimore Eli Giants. Mm. Yeah, he became um, an All Star in the uh, the Negro League's own All Star, known as the East West League. Mm. He was a great outfielder. Uh, in fact, his niece worked at the Irwin Rec Center, huh. and she told me tidbits about him. Uh, he could have. He had he have not had a serious injury, he would have made it to the major leagues. You know, it's quite a few. And again, I know you have that list of names. I mean, I could go on and on for <laughs> forever. You have a player in mind. I read that Satchel Page played a, a couple of games in um, locally, so I was curious to know about that. Yeah, he um, during the off seasons when. He was not playing in the Negro Leagues and the Major Leagues. Uh, a lot of these all-star players, like your Satchel Pages, Willie Mazes, and even Jackie Robinson, would form their own barnstorming baseball team. And they would travel all throughout the co- country as well as the southeast. And so um, through my research, I found out that Satchel Page All-Stars came to Gastonia to play the local black baseball team here. Good grief. Yep. And even Willie Mays and his all-star team, they came to Gastonia as well. And they all came to Gastonia to play at Irwin Memorial Baseball Stadium. And the stadium is still there today. It's in front of the rec center. Mm -hmm. But back then, they had wooden bleachers, and they had a field surrounding the outfield at that time. It was a nice stadium. There are still pictures around to show what the stadium actually looked like when they played the field that they play, well, they practice football on now. I always see kids out there in the playing football. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The it's Little a, League? Yeah. A, the Youth League? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a baseball field. You can tell it's a baseball field, but, yeah, I think they practice the football. Yeah, it's a famous stadium. I think um, there should be more attention brought to that. That's amazing. That's really neat, though, and to the think that, you know, the great Central Page was throwing pitches. On that Stay. field, what, like, what is six, what is six, two? Six, I, I'm thinking. He was, he was six, four. Six, four. But the thing was, he was six four. He only weighed like a buck sixty five. Yeah, and he had he was incredible really long arms, or from what I've read. Mm-hmm. Just a just you know, 
memorable. Everyone's always so memorable to watch him pitch. And it's just incredible windup, incredible, you know, just great throws. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That was the talent level, man. That there was it was packed. Come to see really great baseball. Exactly. When, all right. So, is there a particular team that was the most feared in our area? Like I've heard, like the the Belmont Blues were something to to behold. Were they? Is that just a lot of smoke from people from Belmont telling me, or was that like true? No, that was true. Oh, that was that was definitely true. Nice. I just moved to Belmont. Justin lives in Belmont too, so um, I'm gonna rep them. Yeah, Belmont Blues. In fact, that's where Butch Davis, who I mentioned earlier, he got his start with the Belmont Blues, as well as Carl Forney and some other other players who went on to play in the Negro Leagues. They were a uh, pipeline. So if you saw them on your schedule, you're just oh, start you're sweating. In, you're in trouble. <laughs> you're just you're in trouble. It's trouble. Some poor team from Lowell's like, oh, my God. No. Yeah, you're done. Even <laughs> in Gastonia, unfortunately. Did, did, did Bessemer City have a team? They did. Oh. Actually, um, Gaston County had their own Negro League by the 1950s. Oh. And Bessemer City had their own black baseball team. Oh, wow. Yep. Mm. That's not really surprising. I mean, they had such a strong African-American community in, in, in Vantine, um, you know, with the built around the Bessemer City um, Rosenwald School um, and, the, and the African-American community that kind of developed in there. So I'm, I'm not surprised that they were able to develop a really top-notch sports team because that's, that's been an old community that's been developing for a long time. Definitely. Even Cramerton. Cramerton, when the Gaston County Negro League was formed in the 50s, they were a strong baseball team along with the Belmont Blues. Were they usually, I mean, I know that like with Dr. Irwin, I mean, it was you know, almost like a business venture, you know, um, he, you know, he had a, he had a, he had an understanding of business and he made these ventures, but with the other communities, did it kind of develop around say like the schools or the, the churches or anything, or was it just, you know, one person said, you know what, those kids can play some ball. Let's put some, let's put something together. Going through historical narrative and information. A lot of this was built through the community. Mm wanting to form this, or even the men who worked in the mills. They felt like, you know, they had bragging rights. Like, you know, even even though Belmont Blues are this big, hot-notch team, you know, I, we're good enough. We yeah, can we beat could, them. We can take them down. That's Mercedes City. We're better than them. We just, need, good. We just need one pitcher, you know. Yeah, pitcher, maybe a shortstop, and we're ready to go. Someone who can hit here <laughs> the, and there. The the uh, the <laughs> The... The brash thinking of every baseball fan in April. Oh, we need this one pitcher. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Just one step away. Which is yeah. one step away. <laughs> Till inning seven. Yeah. <laughs> then it all shows, oh, no, we're terrible. Oh, <laughs> yeah, those guys are good. Yeah, because I've seen scores where, I mean, it was 25 to three. Oh, that's brutal. Eight, 18 to zero. Wow. Oh, that's brutal. No, no mercy rule, huh? No mercy. No mercy. I won't. I won't name out some of the towns. <laughs> Mercy but, comes in the um, inning. I already know well, Belmont Blues was just killing it. So. That's right. <laughs> but one of the towns is where somebody in this room lives. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh no, not Lowell. Oh sweet Lowell. <laughs> I assume they, these oh, we're sitting across from two people from Belmont. So. Oh, listen, I'm from Bessemer City. Okay. Oh, let me let well. me use my eyes. <laughs> oh no, Bessemer City. <laughs> oh, I said it out loud. I'm so sorry. So sorry, podcast people. We can, we can edit it out later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're still beautiful, Bessemer City. You're yes, beautiful. yes, you are. Listen. Yes. 
I read, I read Bessemer City. So I'm from Bessemer City in Dallas. So I don't really know which one I'm from. I'm like on the line. So oh, you can when it's all of them. When it's convenient to say Bessemer City, I say Bessemer City. When it's convenient to say Dallas, I say yeah. Dallas. Sometimes I say Charlotte. So what, it's whatever like side of 321 you find yourself on. It's yes, which one you choose. Exactly. Got it. Okay, so you took us from so like 1920s. Well, from the 1800s really to 1920s to now. Gaston County in the 1950s has a has their own Gaston County Negro League. How long did that league last? Uh, it didn't last that long. I would say at least four to five years. So okay. um, from the mid-1950s all the way up to the yeah, late 1950s. So what happened? Just the, the love of the game started to dwindle mm-hmm. and people moving out of the area. Um, yeah. And that's what you, what you typically see is that, you know, the population is so high. And then all of a sudden, people started moving out and leaving the area. Oh, yeah, especially Gaston County. That was a mill boom, and, and everybody left. And yeah, I guess it happened again. It was another phase of it. Yeah, it's it, you can see it um, in our population growth, and, and it really depends on how well the, the mills were going. Um, 50s is still pretty humming pretty good uh, with the mills. Um, but, you know, it, it really depends on where you are and what your financial backing is, too. It was a lot more difficult for the African American leagues to to teams to find f- fundraising, right? Um, the community would help out as much as they could, but it was still you know you don't have the the backing say of the big mills. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Michael. I, I didn't find any Negro leagues that had the big mill backing. Um, they may have been out there. I mean, you know, you're talking about the you know talk about the Blues. I wouldn't be surprised if that popped up. But as far as we can tell right now, it's all you know small small amounts to, to keep it going. Unfortunately, because of the Jim Crow era and segregation in the South, there were no African-Americans playing on these white male baseball teams. And so they had to form their own baseball teams in their communities. And a lot of the funding uh, came from the community members. Uh, If there was a black-owned business, they would try to, you know, sponsor them. But that was rare and far in between. And so uh, with that, it just because of finances and the lack of support and many of them starting to move away, it kind of died away. And then by the 60s, you know, football and boxing are becoming the bigger sports, you know. Baseball's always had the competition. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always kind of wanted this, too, with with the, um, the schools, too. I mean, high school sports, huge in Gaston County. Yeah. Even yes. I mean, I'm sorry to cut you off, no. but like um Legion baseball is still big mm-hmm. in Gastonia. I mean, if you start looking through the history of Legion baseball, it goes back ooh, long time. Yeah. Long time. Back to that, you know, early nineteen hundreds. Yep. So we we've talked about history between eighteen eighty and nineteen sixty essentially, um, Gaston County. All, all that predates civil, uh, civil rights era and I'm wondering how how baseball in this area shaped society leading up to that time period. Yeah, it definitely kept the morale going. You know, it got people away from having to think about the hardships of having to work in these mills, maybe black or white, or having to deal with struggles financially. You know, because, again, this was a community gathering anytime there was a baseball game going on. And so this was usually the only time people got to see each other mm-hmm. when they mm-hmm. were at a baseball game, you know. And it, it just got their minds 
away from, you know, day-to-day lives. Yeah, and on a larger scope, segregation is a poison, you know, and and it's hard to get out of the system. It takes generations of determination to to undo hundreds of years of of division and and belief um, in races not being equal. It didn't you know? It's not it's not like when the border you know when, when the rules to the civil rights movement you know reaches uh, zenith in the sixties. They were like, oh yeah, that, that was a bad idea. Well, let's mm-hmm. all get together. It's going to be great. It was it was hard hard fought, and especially with the African American community being the the ones on the front line, having to 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 do it. Uh, some would even say to this day they're still on the front line. One of the uh, I think is interesting, you know, seeing though from the outskirts of of uh, desegregation and Jackie Robinson and, and those who follow in other sports, it put you know this interesting thing for the kids. You know, now they're heroes that they idolized were not people who look like them. You fell in love with their play and their and their professionalism in certain cases, or their or their their flash. Um, and it's an interesting moment here in the South, I would say, and sports provided that is for kids to come out and idolize someone that is not of their race. And for you know, I can't speak for the African American community, but I can definitely speak for 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 my own side of the the segregated line. That was a game changer, you know, and it starts being a situation where how can I not like this person just because their color is not mine? And and it really puts a major dent in the whole philosophy of, of you know, white supremacy or segregation or, or, or life, you know, you know, fair but, you know, separate but equal and all that kind of jargon starts to, you know, the sports start to unravel that um, uh, for our communities. Definitely um, with that being that my father was born in 1935, so he grew up when during the time when Jackie Robinson integrated, and he was like, that was my team after that. And, you know, I come across and I meet a lot of those men of that time saying the same thing. So African Americans definitely became big followers of Brooklyn Dodgers. But before, to add on to your question, um, before the integration, of uh, the major leagues with Jackie Robinson, these these local teams here were the community's team. Right. They were following their team. This was their local team. Uh, the the players that played on these teams were household names. Uh, majority of the time, they were following teams here, not teams in the Northeast or the Midwest. That's why if you go through the newspapers today, you'll find more games uh, – that were played here and talked about than the national on the national level. And you'll find like players names and everything and what they did during that particular game or season. I guess from a Gaston County museum and through your research, what are, what's the, what's a historian kind of, what's your role in preserving that history? What's our role? We got roles. You're on the spot. <laughs> right. I, I think one is to educate yourself um, and learn it. And, and then get to t- and then share it, you know, with, with the museum, it's, it's kind of, you know, one of our big movements is making sure that when we are, you know, we're at the Gaston County Museum, we represent all of Gaston County. Well, we need to make sure that we're doing that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sadly enough, African-American history is, a, is the richest history in Gaston County that's underrepresented. And so those are the, that's the challenge, right, is to, to rectify that problem. 
And it's also a situation where, you know, you have to look to the community, you know, to be part of that. You know, I can go dig up all this information about Ransom Hunter. I can do, you know, I can look up Dr. Irwin and that's great and all. But getting the community that remembers this, who has cherished this, who has saved it, and getting them to be able to start to, you know, tell the story of not only what actually happened, but also the story of why you don't know. And, and I think that's part of what the museum is, you know, striving to do, you know, with the research that Michael's been able to do with the, the, with the Negro League is much different than anything I would ever be able to do um, because he is, you know, he has been able to, to tap into the friendships and to the relationships of those who lived through it and then after it and, and being able to, to start to share that information. Yeah, and to add on to that, I'm I'm doing another similar project where I'm from in Charlotte. It's a neighborhood called Biddleville, mm-hmm. and um, Biddle Biddleville community is surrounded by Johnson C. Smith University. And so, uh, as a graduate, they reached out to me, um, knowing of my family connections and background. And you know, like Jason, what Jason said, um, a person who's not from the area or the community trying to dig up all this research and collect it, they can only do so much. They need more insight. They need people who were uh, living during those certain times, who experience uh, those things during the time that he's trying to record and to restore. I believe more people should do it. So it it really um, brought my attention and awareness that I should be a part of it. You know, and not only me, but many more, because, you know, someone who's trying to do the research who's not from here can only do so much than, say, someone who's from that community who has more insight and intel and knowledge and other connections to other people who may still still be around to, to gather and give more information to museums like Jason, who may not have knowing about certain things until it was brought to his attention. Yeah, it's always, it's always amazing when, you know, it, you, get, you get trapped in this thing when you study history. You know, you think, I have discovered this. <laughs> I have brought this out from the doldrums of the past to present it to my fellow man. And so I was, you know, I was looking into Dr. Irwin and, and said, I believe that's the old hospital. And so we went out there and we were looking at, and we parked in the parking lot, um, of the Rosewood. And as we're going out to look at the house, there's a, a lady, an African-American lady that was um, on her smoke break. And she's standing there and she saw these two, you know, I was, uh, my education manager was with me, Alex Brooks was with me. Two guys jump out of the car, two white guys jump out of the car and start heading over to this house. And she just kind of looks at us as real funny and said, what are y'all, what are y'all doing? <laughs> and we said, we think this may be the African-American hospital. This may be the Negro hospital. And she's like, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, you, you're not discovering anything, man. We already know. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like this cold where I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. We we thought we knew something that everybody else knows. And but that, that is so true with, with most of African-American community. It's the community knows it's just now being shared more with the rest of us. I mean, and it's very powerful. The fact that, you know, Ransom Hunter, words associated with Ransom Hunter are now on the side of the baseball park for all time is a major change, I would say. Um, And it's, it is very powerful to be able to, to, you know, highlight a a local legend and in a way that's, that's meaningful to to the entire community. 
Yeah, definitely. And then on top of that, you know, the first black majority baseball owner. Right, right. You know, to go along with all this rich legacy and history, you know. And so it's something it's something to think about for not only this community, but the surrounding area as well, to know the rich, you know, history and legacy of Gaston County. And and it's very rich. Uh, I think you know we talked about the Negro League. We talked about Dr. Irwin, the hospitals, but I mean there's there's so much more here in Gaston County. When you talk about Biddleville, um, there's direct competition to Biddleville here in Gaston, um, and with Lincoln Academy and with the uh, the different. Well, we talked about the different communities. It's it's powerful and strong, and 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 it's a people of resilience. That's one thing I've always said about Gastonians. They're a resilient bunch of. Uh, guys and gals <laughs> um and and they'll let you know it too and but it's it's very that's something that i think every guest in county resident holds to heart no matter who you are you know you are resilient and that has shown out throughout its history and we're able to start showcasing a side that didn't get enough light didn't get enough chance and that's that's really exciting that is exciting i lived at Lorray mill um while they were doing some finishing touches on the uh, building, and I got to see that Honey Hunter right outside of my window. Oh, that, yeah. that sun, it was awesome. I was so excited, but then I moved. So now I don't get to walk to the games. I was really excited about that. Gaston County plays a big part in black baseball history, a very big part. And I think people who are from Gaston County should be very proud. Hopefully uh, Jason and I can one day write a book about it. Oh, we're going to write a book about this? Possibly. Sounds like you are right now. All right. Well, yeah. there's, there it is looks a, like you have. About the, about <laughs> there's like five or six different things we, we said, we're going to write a book I know. about this. Tell me about it. we got a long list of books. It could turn into 100 books. It could really good. What, really what was your major in college? History. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I primarily dealt with uh, the American South on religion with African Americans, mm. primarily the Presbyterian faith. What's the one thing that you want Gaston County residents to know about, either about the Negro Leagues in Gaston County, about Gaston County's history? It's a day to celebrate. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a culmination of years of planning and development for the city and for the county um, at large. But it's also it's, it's a celebration of, of you know, the history and, and the love that brought a lot of the community together. Um, this game, this silly game of... You know, people standing on the field with big mitts on trying to catch a ball as a dude runs around plates on a field is is something, as Americans, we have all enjoyed um, throughout time. And that's something to be celebrated that we're able to bring it here into the, into the city and have a new team and have a new, new group to be able to celebrate together. In regards to Ransom Hunter, where was he originally from? That's a great question. Um, we're not 100% sure. Uh, it's... Most likely here. I've heard South Carolina. Okay. Um, that he may have come up through South Carolina. Um, he, he put in his, his um, census reports that he was from North Carolina, but he made, you know, it's like north, south, whatever, I don't care. Okay. Um, you kind of popped that balloon. Oh, I've did? seen I've seen, like, Charleston. What yeah, that? that's one of the big ones is to talk oh, about Charleston. Okay. Um, and but I, I think you know, far far as I can tell, from from Ransom himself, when he writes, you know, when when they asked him doing the census records, he said, "Where are you from?" He said, "North Carolina." Um, but that may change. I have to go back and look and see if he, if he swaps states, which is possible. His age, he like skips a couple of decades every once in a while. It's like in, in, I think in 1870 he's 52, and then 1880 he's like, well, 56. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it varies. It varies. I was trying to bring it all full circle. Well, if he's from, I, I've seen reports where he allegedly mm-hmm. may have been from Charleston, South Carolina, and 
doing this research on black baseball, I found one of the earliest recorded games in the Buford, South Carolina newspaper of these uh, enslaved men, some free, some not, playing town ball. See, baseball was called town ball and also... Rounders. Rounders, thank you. And it was dated in 1773. This is the pre-dawn days of the American Revolutionary War. And so to tie all that in, um, at the time I allegedly thought Ransom Hunter was from Charleston. That's the low country. Mm -hmm. So to tie everything in with Ransom being from this area, being as successful as he is, and to keep his long-lasting legacy going with the na- with the team naming him after him, uh, it just brings everything full circle. And so conducting all this research, again, Jason and I only know so much, but if there's a listener listening right now who has more information, may it have been a grandfather, a father, uncle, cousin, please, Come to us. We want to hear your stories. We yes. want to know more because we can only do so much. And I always feel like it's a disservice to hold on to that information mm-hmm. because it could lead into many other things. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. Especially especially for Gaston County itself. Yeah. And I think this is this is one of the many good things for Gaston County to tell that that rich history and legacy that they so rightly deserve, you know, because again, Gaston County is rich with history. Absolutely. I can only, I can say that so many times, yeah. but it's true. true. I'm trying to emphasize in the best way I know how. It's always, it, some of my favorite stories from Gaston County begin with a local citizen saying, hey, have you ever heard of this? And it just sends us on this great research chase to, to find another piece of our county's history and starting to put it back together again. Hmm. I was like, and even this, this is totally off the topic, but just, you know, just blew my mind when I was doing some, some backup research on uh, Margaret, uh, uh, Maggie Wells, who was um, Ransom's second wife, um, his, his young second wife. Um, her family, the George Wells and uh, his wife, were in Dallas. They, they lived in Dallas, and they represented that they were all born in Dallas. And so I was like, well, that's interesting. So I started looking at where their census report from 1870, um, when they were, you know, first showing up. And guess who's listed right next to them? Like so, whenever they did census reports, they kind of dropped around a little bit. But they usually meant the house that's next to you is usually means it's really really close to you. It's Jasper Stowe. Oh no. Jasper and Jasper Stowe is one of the original textile mill pioneers of Stoweville that was built before the Civil War. It actually stopped running during the Civil War. So. George Wells was a neighbor to Jasper Stowe and Maggie, who was nine years old in 1870, um, was living in an area. And it's just like my, my, my different worlds just start crashing into each other on that one little piece of paper. Just that, that's the stuff that's that keeps wild. museum people going. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe all this, this new team and all this baseball buzz will un, uncover some of this stuff. Maybe some people will start talking about it more and some of these stories will come out. I think so. Yeah, that would be great. It's already started. Yeah, yeah. here we yeah, are. Clearly. Right yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And, this is a great opportunity for other people to use this platform to who may be out there with the information and knowledge. 